In the blitz of coverage about those private planes that carried dozens of migrants to Martha's Vineyard last month, there's this one fact I can't stop thinking about. It's about where these migrants were coming from. Not Mexico, not Guatemala, but Venezuela. There are seven countries between the United States and Venezuela. That means the people on those planes were at the end of a very long trip. Cindy Arnson from the Wilson Center's Latin America program She wasn't surprised by who was on this plane. She says over the last few years, 20 percent of Venezuela's population has fled. Sometimes they're coming directly from Venezuela. Sometimes they're coming from other countries to which they had migrated to leave Venezuela. The reality that people need to focus on is that the numbers of people from Venezuela, from Nicaragua, from Cuba, all left-wing dictatorships that are opposed, not just by the Biden administration, but by the Republican Party, by Ron DeSantis himself, the governor of Florida. Those are the countries that have seen a surge in arrivals at the U.S. border. Did it strike you as kind of ironic? Um... It's probably something that Governor Santos was not paying a lot of attention to. To understand why so many people are fleeing Venezuela in particular, just go check out the State Department's website. The U.S. government explicitly advises against going to Venezuela yourself due to rampant crime, civil unrest, poor health infrastructure, and kidnapping, among other things. If you go anyway... The State Department recommends you draft a will, leave DNA samples with a medical provider, and be prepared for an indefinite stay. All of which helps to explain why migrants would journey so far, by foot, by car, and then end up on this flight north. One migrant told the New York Times he had been robbed at gunpoint and then watched a friend drown while crossing the Rio Grande River. And I think people who undertake the journey in some ways are aware of the risks, but despite the risks, think that it is worth it to try to get to the United States and to leave the situation that they're in within Venezuela. It's an economy that has collapsed and collapsed dramatically. It is the largest economic collapse outside of wartime, something like an 80% decline in GDP in a very short number of years. Yeah, I realized at some point reading that man's story, that life in Venezuela must have been intolerable for you to keep going as you're watching people die around you, as you're getting robbed and going on foot and by car up to the United States. And yet large numbers of people do make it to the U.S. border. And what happens to them when they get to the border is, I think, what has become so politically controversial in this country. Today on the show, what is behind this stunning demographic shift at the border? And why can't the U.S. figure out what to do with these asylum seekers once they cross? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. Cindy Arnson says 
understanding what happened to those migrants in Martha's Vineyard starts with understanding what they left behind. Venezuela has been teetering on collapse for years, led by a series of violent dictators. Nicolas Maduro took over in 2013, but he uses the same moves perfected by his predecessor, Hugo Chavez. Well, the playbook was mostly, I think, implemented during the Chavez years, where many private sector um, enterprises were expropriated, where independent journalism was shut down, where there were extreme limitations on opposition political activity. It is a country that has hundreds of political prisoners, that uses uh, torture, um, threats against people's families. The United Nations Human Rights Council just issued about a week ago, um, around the time of the UN General Assembly in New York, um, a a report accusing the regime of crimes against humanity. So an authoritarian regime for sure, but also largely dependent on oil revenue. And oil is volatile in terms of its price, which has caused problems for the whole economy, right? It's not just the price volatility, although that is an important aspect of virtually all commodity exports. Venezuela has the largest known oil reserves in the world. Um, It is a petrostate. Its principal economic activity has to do with the extraction um, and and marketing of oil. The oil sector has also collapsed due to the lack of maintenance of facilities, due to corruption, the um, mass stealing of government resources from the state-owned oil company PDVSA. So... How does all this chaos impact ordinary Venezuelans' lives? Like, my understanding is it's incredibly hard to get health care. It's incredibly hard sometimes to get food. All of those things are true. And this was particularly evident during the COVID crisis, um, where hospitals were overstretched. Um, There are very good studies by universities and non-governmental organizations in Venezuela that have documented um, the looting of hospitals, the lack of availability of even the most basic medicines. Um, That said, people who can pay in dollars to a private clinic, um, which very few Venezuelans have access to, can get pretty decent medical care. The same thing, those who have dollars can find food products um, uh, at very high prices, but the average Venezuelan does not have access to that. There is a government-subsidized food box that does not make it through more than maybe a week or, or 10 days of the month. It's not enough to get by on. And this is one of the main drivers of this really extraordinary um, outflow of Venezuelans to principally other countries of Latin America and the Caribbean, but increasingly now to the U.S. border. And this is happening even though there's been a bit of a rebound in terms of the oil economy, given Ukraine. 
Right. Well, after a, an economy collapses, to go back to growth rates of six or seven percent is heralded as a turnaround. But what it basically means is that, you know, you're going from being on life support to one less critically needed intervention. It is not a healthy economy. And the oil sector is a shadow of its former self and a shadow of even what it was during the government of Hugo Chavez. Listeners might remember that a few years ago, there was this moment of hope for some people in Venezuela because an opposition leader, this man named Juan Guaido, was declared the rightful president. But he never took office. Nicolas Maduro remained in power. It seems to me like the country has been in this protracted stalemate politically. Well, let's go back to the emergence of of Guaido. As I mentioned, he came out of the National Assembly, um, which was controlled by the opposition, um, which won power through highly skewed elections in in the regime's favor, but nonetheless, the opposition won. Um, Guaido's interim presidency was strongly embraced by the United States, by about 50 other governments around the world as a legitimate government. But he remained, for all of his courage and the um, symbol of hope and optimism that he represented, um, largely a figurehead. It's been three years since opposition leader Juan Guaido was deemed the winner of Venezuela's presidential election. But despite international support for Guaido, President Nicolas Maduro continues to lead the embattled country, which is undergoing a shrinking economy and a growing humanitarian and refugee crisis. For more on Venezuela... And to the extent that one can um, honestly assess public opinion within Venezuela, there is obviously a great desire for change. There is a lot of skepticism and I think a pessimism regarding the chances that that will happen. But um, given the Guaido interim presidency's inability to actually deliver sort of concrete benefits, changes on the ground, um, his popularity has fallen um, and Maduro's remains very, very low. So I can see why an average Venezuelan would look at all this and just think, well, we tried to have a political change. It didn't work. Things are still pretty bad here. Why not take a risk? and try to go north. That seems to be like the calculus most people are making. Well, I think the calculus that people make is that their only hope of a better life is to leave. And more than 20% of the population have left with the bulk of those people leaving since 2014. It's a very short period of time. And I think it's important to point out that um, countries of South America in particular, but also the Caribbean, are bearing the brunt of this. We understand the politicization of the refugee crisis here in the United States, but Colombia alone um, is home to about two and a half million Venezuelans. This is after its own economy was hit by the COVID pandemic 
And now by this, you know, huge increase in energy and food prices and in inflation, interest rates. So these are countries that have even less wherewithal uh, to deal with these massive inflows. The final point on this is that the Caribbean has far fewer numbers in terms of like the gross numbers, but as a percentage of its population, the small island states of the Caribbean have a much larger percentage of Venezuelans relative to their own domestic population than any place in the world. After the break, what happens to Venezuelan migrants who do make it to the U.S.? The answer is, it's complicated. While lots of Venezuelan migrants settle somewhere between their home country and the U.S., more and more are making their way further north. So I asked Cindy Arnson, what happens once they get to the U.S.? For the most part, they're asking for asylum. Um, They are required, along with that asylum request, to report regularly to immigration authorities, and their cases can uh, can take years. And life is very, very precarious, and I think much harder than people uh, probably even would have imagined. They arrive to the extent that they make it beyond the border and and beyond a, a, a detention facility, you know, run by CBP or, or ICE. They do not have shelter, and life is extremely precarious for the people, even those who succeed in making this long and dangerous journey. It's interesting because my understanding is that Venezuelans have been fleeing to the U.S. and other places for a long time. Certainly, the volume of people may have increased. But it seems like the population of who is coming is changing. Like a few years ago, I was reading about wealthier Venezuelans catching a flight to Florida and just staying. But now it seems like the people who I'm hearing about are much more desperate, undertaking much more fraught journeys. Is that fair? I I think that's true. I think that the initial waves of of Venezuelans leaving Venezuela did so during Hugo Chavez, saw what was happening politically, but also economically in their country, and in many cases had businesses that were taken away or family members who uh, were threatened or put in jail. And those early Waves of migrants, many of them, as you indicate, to the state of Florida, were economically much more well-off. And there's a real change now um, in the economic status of the people who are leaving. They are people who are desperately poor. They are not professionals. The, The professional class, including people who worked in the oil sector, left many years ago. To Cindy, this point is important because this demographic shift makes it easier for politicians to dehumanize these asylum seekers. They are seen as as burdens. They are not seen as people who would contribute professionally or economically to the United States. Uh, They are seen as people who are going to drain the resources of local and state governments at a time when when the federal government is not providing enough support. And I think what really underlies all of this is the need for some effort, which I think 
politically is probably impossible right now to come together and come up with a consensus-based federal policy that is in line with U.S. law and human rights commitments and that recognizes the burdens that are placed on border states that are the principal recipients of migrant populations, but also understands the opportunities that migrants represent. Um, There is a shortage uh, of of agricultural labor right now. Uh, There are policies of giving temporary visas to people during harvest seasons to allow them, you know, to participate in um, in agricultural harvests. But there is no sense overall in the United States at this point of what immigrants can contribute to society. I think the, um, the predominant view is that they are here to hurt us in some way, to take away our jobs or serve as, as drains on the taxes that hardworking Americans pay. And these kinds of sentiments don't come out of nowhere. Uh, it certainly existed for a long time, but the political exploitation of this issue is very much a factor of the polarization in, in the times we live in. Do you think one side, the Democrats or Republicans, is doing that more or less? Um, you know, it's hard. I think that the um, intense demonization of migrants and refugees um, took place during the Trump years as a very, very conscious policy. Um, and at the same time, I don't see a lot of energy on the Democratic side for trying once again to come up with an immigration policy that would make sense for the United States. This has become the purview of a handful of, of uh, immigration research think tanks and migrants' rights groups and human rights lawyers, but there is really no national conversation about what would make sense in the 21st century uh, for U.S. immigration policy. Yeah, it's funny because I look at the lawsuits with migrants suing DeSantis and the sheriff's investigation and I see why those have been brought. But I also think that at the end of a trip like the ones we've discussed, walking and driving miles and miles through multiple countries, a free flight to Martha's Vineyard would look pretty good. Well, it would look good except that it was provided under really deceptive conditions. There have been numerous reports that talk about this particular woman who was called Perla, uh, who made all kinds of promises, and the promises were empty ones, but it was to lure migrants onto an airplane in the sense that they were going to go on to Nirvana. And uh, those people were welcomed to the best ability of the uh, of the residents of, of Martha's Vineyard, but that was certainly not at all anything close to a resolution of their migration status in the United States or a path to stable employment or to housing or any of the other kinds of things that, that migrants are looking for. You've alluded to this, but one of the curious things about this flight of Venezuelan migrants to Martha's Vineyard, to me, is that Governor Ron DeSantis, who orchestrated it, has so many Venezuelan constituents in Florida, and he relies on them for votes. He talks about them. He talks to them. Do we know how this flight is being received in the Venezuelan community? 
There have certainly been indications that the Venezuelan-American community in Florida is uh, is critical, has been critical of DeSantis's efforts to politicize this issue. Growing outrage tonight from the Venezuelan-American community over this. Governor Ron DeSantis confirming the state of Florida chartered two flights to Martha's Vineyard, dropping off 50 Venezuelan migrants. And now he's carting them around like cattle from state to state. Questions also growing. And at the same time, though that community is not necessarily um, looking to have, you know, thousands of desperately poor Venezuelan migrants show up in Florida and draw on the needs of the community. The community already sends lots of money back to Venezuela in remittances. But I think there is um, a growing sense within the Republican Party in Florida that in the state of Florida, within the Venezuelan community, this is not popular, but it probably is an overall plus for the governor in terms of the average Florida voter. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I found this video of Ron DeSantis from earlier this year having a roundtable discussion with a bunch of Venezuelan activists and personalities. Well, good afternoon. We're really excited to be uh, in Doral. At the time, he was talking about the fact that President Biden, given the war in Ukraine, was sending a diplomatic delegation to Venezuela and criticizing the president for that, saying that, you know, Biden's going hat in hand to legitimize Nicolas Maduro, who's responsible for countless atrocities. And I know a lot of Floridians uh, are very angered by the Biden administration's recent attempt to legitimize the brutal Maduro regime in Venezuela. This is something... And to me, I look at that, and then I look at this migrant flight, and it seems hypocritical. Well, again, I think the distinction is um, to the average American voter, the power of of a migration, anti-migration uh, message is so much more useful and so much more powerful than a rather rarefied foreign policy debate over the nature of the Venezuelan government. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds to me like if you had your druthers, the president or someone would basically say, hey, this flight to Martha's Vineyard we're all talking about, it's a real inflection point. And we do need to talk about all the ways our immigration system is broken. And it's time to fix it. But it also sounds like you're saying you don't see a lot of appetite for that. I don't see a lot of appetite for that at all. And and you especially would think that there would be a larger appetite now that the huge increases in border crossings are from three authoritarian repressive governments um, in the region that Republicans constantly demonize, Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, and that, that Democrats also um, have been very critical of and understand that it is not possible to send people back to those countries. You cannot deport people back to their fate. And so this disconnect between the foreign policy aspects of what's taking place and the exploitation of the immigration theme for domestic political gain is uh, quite dramatic. Cindy Arnson, I'm really grateful for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much. Cindy Arnson is a distinguished fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. She's the former director of the center's Latin American program. 
And that's the show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support what we do is to join Slate Plus. And the best way to do that is to go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus and sign up. You get ad-free podcasts like this one and all access to slate.com. It's super great, so go show us some love. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Mary Wilson, Carmel Delshad, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support right now from Anna Phillips and Jared Downing. And if you didn't catch Sunday's episode of TBD with Lizzie O'Leary, go scroll back in the feed right now and give it a try. It's a debate between William McCaskill and Robert Wright on long-termism. What should we be doing now to preserve future generations? We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And I'm Mary Harris. I'll catch you back in this feed tomorrow. Tomorrow. 